Hello, and welcome to On Point, a podcast series of fresh thinking on the big topics for corporates and institutions. I'm Neil Parker, FX Market Strategist at NatWest. In this episode of On Point, we're going to dive into China's post-pandemic economic outlook and discuss what the shape of the recovery means for businesses in the UK, Europe, and the US. How does China's approach to monetary and fiscal policy differ from that taken during the global financial crisis? We're nearly 100 days into the Biden presidency. Will tensions between China and the US ease or escalate? And what does that mean for trade? How has the post-pandemic recovery affected the yuan and global supply chains? What does the country's longer-term economic ambitions mean for corporates based in places like the UK, Europe, and the US? To explore this further, I'm joined by our China economist, Pishin Liu, and head of G10 FX strategy, Brian Dangerfield. Can I first start with Peishan? So we we did a call back in uh, July 2020, and uh, we talked then about supply chains. With Chinese growth continuing to outpace global growth, is the domestic growth seen in China a threat to global supply chains? So what has been outstanding was really, as you mentioned, China's export share has gained a global market share and contributed very positively to its uh, GDP, because China took the role by filling out the gap of global supply chain disruptions. And also, we are currently experiencing a very strong external sector de- uh, recovery, which is driven by the US stimulus. But that was a story for 2020. In 2021, we think the story will be more focused on rebalance after the initial recovery. In Q1, we had a decent surge in consumption. Even, even if we take away the uh, base effect from last uh, from Q1 2020, we still see a higher than expected rebound in retail sales, which means that the growth begins to rebalance more towards consumption into 2021. So just to look a little bit deeper into China's external balance and how does that differ from the previous uh, recoveries since the global financial crisis. If we look at the trade balance from China with the world in 08-09, the global financial crisis, China's trade surplus narrowed significantly. And that was because China acted as a last resort of buyer by introducing a 4 trillion fiscal stimulus, which which eventually put the entire world out of the crisis because of that fiscal spending. But now when we're looking at the last bit of the line on China's trade balance with the world, it, it rebounded very sharply, on contrary from the previous uh, recovery cycle. So I categorize this as China acting as an unfailing supplier of the global manufacturing and consumer goods in this round of e- uh, easing or recovery. So in fact, China has been the main beneficiary of global goods recovery so far because both exports and imports have gained global market share by 1.5 percentage points and one percentage points respectively in 2020. And most of those exports went into the developed world as you see from the bottom of the chart that China's exports to the US, the EU has been surging significantly faster compared to its usual trade partners such as the ASEAN countries. But I think this is temporary because one interesting observation is that even though we are seeing very significant rebound in China's exports, we do not see significant investments in China to the manufacturing sector, especially the low-end manufacturing sector, to boost its capacity. 
which means that China is still sticking to its long-term path of upgrading itself in the manufacturing supply chain rather than expanding itself further in terms of manufacturing capacity. So beyond the pandemic, we think that China will continue to rebalance in order to rely more on domestic demand and gradually upgrade itself in the global supply chain. Thanks for that. And uh, and so the logical next question is, what are the risks to inflation? If we, we, we do see that rebalancing, is there going to be demand pull, push both or, or neither? Or should we not be concerned about inflation? We are experiencing a very uh, strong PPR reflation currently. PPR accelerated to 4.7% in March. And I think that was largely still due to a supply demand gap. Because China, being a manufacturing center, has a very strong demand for commodity energy uh, energy, uh, products. But the supply has not been uh, picking up on on par with the demand rebound because of supply disruptions elsewhere. So that's partly a cost push inflation we're seeing so far. It's also interesting to observe that we're also seeing asset price inflation in China as well, as represented by property sector price increase. If you see the lower chart, especially the tier one uh, property sectors, despite the strong control in local government's uh, uh, credit supply to the property sector, we still see uh, tier one property prices rising. And that, in my view, was due to a rising liquidity or easing liquidity conditions globally, including China last year, even though the PBOC has been uh, embarking on the credit tightening this year on the margin and being more restrained the spillover of global liquidity conditions has inevitably led to a higher property prices. The core CPI remains very soft. In fact, it even fell to negative 0.1% in early 2020, which is very indicative of how domestic demand has not really been picked up. So with that, I think headline CPI below 3% and PPI closing to a cyclical peak it will have very limited implication on PBOC's uh, monetary policy in the short term. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Brian, I'm, I'm going to turn to you now. Um, the Chinese yuan, we, we've seen it quite volatile, thinking back to um, last year and, uh, and the year before when we were riding high above seven. Um, we've subsequently fallen down into the low 6.4 region and, and even uh, below that over the course of the um, uh, last 12 months or so. Can it appreciate much further from here and also outperform other Asian currencies? And do authorities want it to? And what are the risks, therefore, to, to, to corporates from an appreciating Chinese currency? The importance of the broader dollar, the broader dollar outlook on dollar CNY has never been more important. Um, and our outlook is consistent for the dollar with some modest appreciation, both against you know a, a broad array of uh, G10 currencies as well as against the CNY. You know we do have um, growth in the U.S. continuing to outperform, but the Federal Reserve likely to keep rates extremely low. Um, in the U.S., interest rates. Um, appear to have peaked, at least for now, you know, the move lower in 10-year yields in the U.S. in combination with very positive growth is a very good environment for underlying risk. You have very strong global growth expectations in the U.S. and globally being fueled by vaccinations and fiscal stimulus. And you don't necessarily have, at least for the moment, the big push higher in U.S. yields really upending 
uh, the volatility and carry story that would otherwise, uh, you know, be is, I think is still negative for the the U.S. dollar. And so our U.S. dollar outlook is consistent with dollar CNY drifting a bit lower, though not massively so. If anything, we're looking more at a stable dollar CNY outlook. I also like to highlight on the right hand side. Uh, our assessment of China stress, stress in Chinese assets, um, has moved, you know, meaningfully lower since the end of the trade war, and really has not. Uh, excuse me, I should say since the uh, since the start of the pandemic, and we're actually back at really pre-trade war levels. So this is looking at both currency, but also uh, this is looking at currency, but also a number of different uh, measures such as equity markets and bond markets, credit, and others. So I think that's also consistent with the general, uh, you know. Positive, you know, stable with a slightly lower outlook on dollar CNY. Perhaps I'll pass it to Pichin to talk a little bit here about, you know, the the surplus on um, uh, the improvement in the current account surplus and how that's also likely contributes to the outlook for the CMY. Uh, we are actually seeing a very supportive current account surplus since uh, 2020, and that was mainly because of a rising exports, as I mentioned earlier, and also a diminishing or shrinking service account deficit because of border closures. Chinese tourists are not able to go out, so that uh, the decreasing service sector deficit is also contributing to a very supportive current account surplus, which rebounded sharply to 1.5% of GDP in 2020. And in terms of capital market flows, which has also accelerated sharply because of favorable, favorable bond, uh, yield differentials, as well as uh, various bond and uh, indices, bond indices and equity indices inclusion, which triggered more asset allocation into onshore markets. So we think that momentum is likely going to continue during the pandemic, but the balance of risks will be much more balanced in the longer term. If uh, with the progress of vaccine uh, rollout, as well as uh, the improvement on the pandemic situation. For one thing, we think that exports might be uh, normalizing to its usual growth of around 8% from currently above 30% because more country will be returned to productions and resume production to take away that uh, performance in exports. And for current account outflows, we are also expecting more outflows with tourism resuming. So we do see more balanced flows supporting a stable yuan beyond the pandemic. Thank you. And I, I, I wanted to just follow up a little bit with regard to the, the Chinese yuan in terms of, have we seen any or, or much change from Chinese businesses regarding pricing in terms of what they're asking for, um, moving away from asking from from European and US corporates paying in dollars to paying in, in the Chinese currency instead? Well, actually, we have not seen that. In terms of uh, payment or settlement in renminbi, that has been relatively stable at around 14% of the total trade value in China, which is down significantly from a peak of above 20% pre the 2015 devaluation. So which means that despite the outperformance of China's export sector, there was no significant pickup in renminbi settlement. I think part of that factor was because of the still closed capital accounts in China. And remember, internationalization might be a much longer than expected process because Chinese policymakers are still very hesitant 
to open up a capital account, to increase the capital account convertibility, especially under current scenarios of very high inflow pressures, both in terms of fundamental flows as well as speculative flows. So we don't really see a case of significant pickup in renminbi settlement as long as the policymakers keep capital accounts relatively well under control. So that leads me to a question for you, Brian, in terms of the, the, the Chinese currency's place in the global FX market, not only currently, but also the evolution of that. Um, uh, do we see much change with regard to that over the coming years? Still, just about 60% of all global reserves are held in dollars, with 20% or so held in euro. So 80% of global reserves are still held in two currencies. Now, China's share has gone up about 1% over the last couple of years. Um, but when you think about the world's, you know, one of the world's largest economies, having only 2% of FX reserves is somewhat inconsistent with that. And as Peichen mentioned, it's really a matter of the, uh, the liberalization of the economy and capital inflows, I think, is a really big piece of that, which is that the authorities, I think, want to have some control over how much speculative inflow and outflow is um, is happening at any given time and I think moves in the direction of becoming a global reserve currency uh, are, are moving quite gradually. You know, CNY turnover is actually relatively low, especially when you consider the size of the economy, you know, um, outpaced by Australian dollar, Swiss franc, Canadian dollar in terms of daily turnover. And so um, that's also sort of consistent with this currency growing in importance on the global stage, but likely to continue to grow at a very gradual rate. And I think that's intentional uh, by the authorities. One thing worth mentioning as well is that, you know, China is a part of the SDR basket. That's an important, you know, piece of its evolution in terms of becoming a more internationally used currency. Uh, but once again, when you think about its status as a reserve currency in, in terms of only 2% of reserves, that's actually quite small relative to its 11% share in the SDR basket. Yeah, and just to uh, for the listening audience, the uh, the SDR is special drawing rights from the International Monetary Fund in case um, you uh, uh, weren't aware of what SDR stands for. I'm, I'm gonna gonna switch um, with regard to the, um, uh, the, the, the the situation as far as the um, questions are concerned because I want to touch on something that we saw a lot of clients talking about in the run-up to the presidential elections. Um, and there was a lot of hope amongst corporates on this side of the Atlantic, at least, that if Biden got elected, he would de-escalate tensions with China. But that doesn't seem to now be the case. I mean, do we actually expect any de-escalation of tensions with China or perhaps even a, a major escalation of tensions between China and the Biden administration? You know, we've always felt that heading into... Uh, even heading into the 2020 election, and now we feel more confident in this view, uh, was that Biden would not necessarily represent a significantly different stance against China compared to Trump. We think the most likely changes would be stylistic um, and the desire to use multilateral rather than bilateral negotiations. And I'll touch on um, the complications around that idea in a moment. But Really, when you think about polling in the U.S. and popular opinion, 
Um, it's no surprise that the Biden administration has started off with a very rocky relationship with China. Um, on the left-hand side of this page shows a poll from Gallup um, asking individuals their views on various countries. Um, and this is the chart showing China. These are two separate polls, both from February of this year really showing favorability of China among the US voters has collapsed since the pandemic. So it's no surprise voters are, you know, have a very adversarial stance towards China. And it's not surprising the administration is taking a similar tact. It's politically popular, it's politically convenient um, to have this aggressive stance on China. During the entirety of the Trump administration, it was never obvious that the administration was hurt by the trade war. There were certainly some concerns um, that Trump's voter share among farmers, among uh, you know, agricultural sector in the Midwest would be hurt by the tariffs being put on agricultural goods during the height of the trade war. We talked about that with places like um, rural Iowa and Minnesota and you know, places in the Midwest where Trump support might wane. But then we look back at 2020 and Trump dominated in Iowa, which is the state that was probably the most impacted by some of these tariffs. He dominated, I think, even by more than he beat Clinton in that state four years ago. So it was never obvious that the voters punished the Trump administration for taking that aggressive stance. If anything, they might have rewarded him for it. So we think the Biden administration stays in that same direction. Does that mean we get major escalation? I don't think so. I don't think we're looking at a Trump style, you know, today we don't have tariffs, tomorrow we're tweeting about tariffs. And if, you know, if we don't get a big deal in the next three months, we're going to have, you know, a 10% boost in tariffs on 25% of China, or, uh, on 25% of the goods that we import from China. You know, the, uh, that's not the kind of environment we're going to be in. I think it's going to be more predictable, but it's going to be more drawn out. And I think more principally driven. One of the things that we think is going to be very different is that, you know, uh, not a criticism of the former president, but I think he was very susceptible to pomp and circumstance. And, you know, he was very much in favor of having the high profile moment where uh, you would have a big meeting between the two world leaders, President Xi and Trump. And that would be a moment of de-escalation where I think um, the Biden administration likely to be less susceptible to that type of kind of flattery strategy, if that makes sense. So maybe more persistently negative, more predictably negative and combative coming from the U.S. The main platform, the main tenet of Biden's platform as regards to China is let's stop using bilateral negotiations and start using multilateral pressure. So Biden's desire is to create a coalition of the willing among Western economies. Um, we know that the U.S. relationship, even with its allies, has been, you know, damaged by the Trump administration, where they pulled back, um, you know, from the international sphere. I, I don't think that's too controversial to say. Um, and whether or not the U.S. has that credibility um, to, to sort of reestablish that leadership, I think, is something that's going to take some time. Um, we also know that at the end of last year, Europe the European Union signed a comprehensive investment agreement with China. So they agreed in principle on, I think, the, the uh, on that agreement at the end of last year after Biden was elected, but before he was inaugurated. So Europe essentially has their own phase one deal with China um, at a time when the U.S. is trying to get them on board with working with them 
uh, to sort of combat China, Europe now has their own kind of phase one deal with China. And so what's the willingness there for uh, the EU and for others um, to work with the US to be competitive on China? We know that um, Europe in particular has higher uh, exposure to exports as a percent of GDP compared to the US, perhaps some more sensitivity on whether you want to um, sort of ruffle the feathers of you know one of the world's largest economies uh, at a time when global growth is improving, but still very fragile. Mention one last thing on this slide. Uh, this is something that Pei Chin brought up, but it's worth sharing again. China's share of US imports since the pandemic has risen. So the ability to de-link from China in a meaningful way, which I think would be, you know, is sort of part of the grander goal um, of the strategy of trying to sort of pull, you know, uh, influence China. Is that possible in an environment where China is actually growing in importance in terms of its share of our of U.S. imports? I mean, it, it, it's almost like we scripted this because that—that's my um, my next question to Peijian was actually going back to the. July last year call, we, we focused quite a lot on manufacturing reshoring from other economies to um, uh, their, own, uh, their, their own economies and away from China. What evidence, if any, is there of, of that happening, uh, particularly bearing in mind what um, Brian has said with regard to the US? China is still taking the lion's share of global manufacturing output. So has reshoring happened since the pandemic? I don't really have any hotline data yet, but anecdotal example tells me that if anything, it might have been reversed. Broadly speaking, it might be uh, industry specific. I think uh, industries under tight scrutiny from the developed world on um, uh, the basis of national security, for example, 5G or semiconductor industry might have experienced a faster than expected reshoring. But broadly speaking, I think that has not really uh, happening in a meaningful way. So I'll just give you an example. If you pick anything that you have bought before the COVID, for example, a T-shirt, a cup or anything, if you look at where does it come from, it perhaps come from a variety of destinations made in China, made in Vietnam, made in Bangladesh. But if you pick anything that you bought during the COVID period, for example, um, maybe the face mask, the surgical masks, a very high chance that it is made in China. So the point I'm trying to say here is that China really took up the role to fill up the global supply chain gaps when the world went on to a disruption. So which means that China remains the most reliable and comprehensive global supply chain. A complete decoupling from China is unrealistic, at least in the next decade, I would say. China actually gained market shares, as I mentioned earlier as well by exports has been increased by 1.5 percentage point in terms of global share in 2020 and imports by one percentage points. Of course, the geopolitical uncertainties and the pandemic both have prompted corporates to rethink about the supply chain from both cost and security perspective. But I think carrying on that plan or implementing that plan probably takes a few more years than we would have imagined. There's been discussion, and, and certainly this is focused in the markets, about a, a dual circulation strategy for China. Could you explain what that is and also how this might affect foreign corporates as well? In the past five or past 10 years even, China was on a rebalancing path to shift its growth away from uh, in heavy industrial uh, investments to consumption. 
But in the next decade, I would say China will want to maintain that balance of consumption and manufacturing and make them rising rank together. So China's industrial policy will still be geared towards maintaining the manufacturing dominance by upgrading it. And dual circulation basically means to re reduce the reliance on key technology from uh, external uh, countries, which China is facing uh, a, a few key issues in terms of geopolitical uh, conflicts with countries. At the same time, domestically, the country also aims to reduce its reliance on external demand by, by gradually tilting that towards domestic consumption as uh, middle-income classes rise. So China still maintains the goal of doubling its per capita GDP in the next 15 years by 2035, which means that China will continue to open up to more foreign investments to encourage foreign corporates to participate in this rising consumption. But in a different way, I think corporates will most likely adopt a one company, two system approach, whereby corporates can benefit both from rising Chinese consumption by making China for China, and at the same time, they might be hedging the risks from the rising geopolitical tensions and the possible disruption of global supply chains by diversification to other countries or even reshoring back to the home countries. That's great. Thank you very much for that, uh, both of you. And I think that's drawn out a lot of interesting topics for corporates in Europe and, and also in the US as well. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of On Point. Please do subscribe to our channel to get future episodes and navigate to ci.napwest.com for the latest updates on what's moving markets. We also encourage you to follow us on social media to get all of our latest content. Speak to you again soon.